Good morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, morning to you. Hey, before we uh, jump into our Bible teaching for this morning, I actually have some really exciting news for you. You know, as a church, we are, <clears throat> excuse me, really, really passionate about reaching people for Christ, seeing people changed in the here and now, and of course, for all of eternity, so much so that we believe in doing that on an exponential level. And so as a church, one of the ways that we do that is we plant new churches out of this church. And we start new churches by really doing three things. Uh, We coach them on how does one start a new church. Uh, We give finances to new churches, and then we give some of our people to go with to start a new church. Church And these are autonomous churches that we're starting. Uh, they're not a campus of Renovation Church. It's not a me on a video screen somewhere. In fact, if you were to go to one of our church plants and say, hey, do you know David Soren? They would say, David who? Renovation what? These are autonomous churches. They have their own culture, their own ministry philosophy, their own DNA, their own pastor, their own name. And that's okay that they don't know who we are. Because one of the things we say here is we're not about building the kingdom of renovation. We're about building the kingdom of God. And we know that we can do that on an exponential level by starting new churches. And so some of you know this because you've been around here for a while, and I know a ton of you are new within the last couple months, but we have actually already started five churches out of our church. You may know some of them. Uh, Transform Church in Andover is one of our church plans. Uh, Pursuit Community Church uh, in Moundsview, uh, all the way down to where Grant uh, used to work at Revision Church in Des Moines. And so today we are announcing our sixth church plant, which is going to be officially launching this fall. The name of that church is going to be Branch Church. Uh, Branch Church is going to be starting in Carver, Minnesota. Uh, If you're like, I've heard of that, but I can't remember where it is. Uh, Carver is in the southwest metro, so it's right next to Chaska, kind of near Shakopee. So it's not as close as some of our more recent ones, but we want to plant churches Our vision is to do all over the Twin Cities metros, to have church plants that are sharing the gospel and reaching people for Christ. And if we're going to go all over the metro, we can't always be within five minutes. So we're going to be in Carver. The pastor of that church is Brian Souter. Uh, Brian was a teaching pastor, so he uh, taught a number of times on the weekends at a Westwood church in Chanhassen. Westwood's one of the largest churches in Minnesota, so he is incredibly qualified to do this, and he is going to do a fantastic job. In fact, Brian and his family and some of their team is going to be hanging out with us here over the next few weeks, so you get a chance to kind of meet him and interact and kind of learn more about how you could even get involved with this church plan. Uh, And finally, uh, let me share an incredible statistic with you. Uh, Once Branch Church kind of gets up and running officially this fall, when they get started, on an average Sunday morning, there will now be over 1,000 people worshiping Jesus in our church plants on a Sunday morning. How awesome is that? We have a lot of people here, and just the exponential impact of that, and it is exponential, because some of our churches are looking to start churches themselves, and you can see where the exponential impact begins to happen. So thank you for your giving. Every time that you give to Renovation Church, we take 5% of that, and we put it right into a fund to start new churches, because we believe that exponentially impacts people for Christ. Okay. Uh, Let's jump into our passage. This summer, we're doing a summer series on the life of Elijah the prophet from the Old Testament. We're just going right through the section of the Bible that talks about Elijah. And last week, we were kind of on the high point of Elijah's life. And today, we're coming to what really is the low point 
in Elijah's life. So just to kind of give you a, a recap, let you know where we are in history here, especially if this is your very first time here today. So we're about 850 BC here. Uh, it all takes place in Israel. And you have Elijah who's confronting this evil king Ahab because Ahab has been leading the country along with his wife, Queen Jezebel, to worship false gods, specifically this false god, Baal. Well, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to this contest, and they go up on this uh, mountain called Mount Carmel, and Elijah basically says, hey, let's each build an altar, and we'll call on our God, and whatever God sends fire from heaven is God. Now, obviously, the Lord wins because he is the one true God, and the people see it, There's thousands of people on the mountain. They see it, they fall prostrate, and they declare the Lord, he is God. And then shortly thereafter, the rain comes, and this drought of three plus years finally ends. Now, we ran out of time a little bit last week because it was such a long passage, but let me just kind of quickly summarize for you the end of chapter 18 before we turn to chapter 19 this morning. So at the end of chapter 18, after this epic battle on Mount Carmel, Elijah actually has all of the prophets of Baal executed, which in our modern minds are like, he did what now? But let me just bring you back to the Old Testament. Now, they were commanded by God to do this. Now, we, one of the things we have to remember when we look to the Old Testament is their context is different. They, they, they don't live in the same context as us, especially in terms of a government structure. So one of the things we have to understand about the people of Israel is the people of Israel were both a people, the Israelites, and they were a government under God. And so false prophets in their government were, that were leading people to worship other gods were to be killed. In other words, the evil was to be purged from their nation state. And you can read more about this in Deuteronomy chapter 17 uh, if you want to study more on that this week. But this action of having the false prophets executed is going to put Elijah into some danger. And we're going to learn about that today. So everybody grab a Bible. This is what we do here. We dig into God's word. Uh, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you. We are going to be on page 245. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, we're going to be on 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, or you can use the Renovation Church app as well to follow along. So after Elijah orders the execution of the false prophets, he then tells King Ahab to go to Jezreel, where Ahab and Jezebel apparently have a second palace. And as Elijah is heading there, Elijah's got huge expectations because so many of the Israelites have seen that the Lord is God. And so he's kind of expecting that since so many people are coming back to God, that this is going to change the monarchy as well. So let's take a look now at our passage. So 1 Kings chapter 19, we are right at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, which is way far away, I'll show you that in a second, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. 
He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Okay, that's our passage for today. So we're going to pause there. This is kind of a bit surprising, right? Because Elijah on Mount Carmel just had this incredible moment with God, and then he runs off to the palace. And he's kind of expecting that either A, Ahab and Jezebel are going to convert to worship the Lord. It's like, how could you not, right? After seeing that, but people will do anything to keep their power, right? Or he's maybe expecting that B, since the people kind of in mass are converting to worship the Lord again, maybe they'll just depose of Ahab and Jezebel, and then Elijah could lead an actual godly king and mentor him. But neither of those things happen. And surprisingly, Ahab and Jezebel are still on the throne, and they still don't believe in the Lord, or at least refuse to bow down to him. In fact, now Jezebel breathes out this murderous threat and basically tells Elijah, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours. And so Elijah flees, and he really flees for his life. In fact, let me show you on the map. Anybody want to see a map? Thank you. All right. All right, here we go. It's probably easier to see if you're in the front, but there, he's up here on Mount Carmel. That's where the big battle takes place. And Mount Carmel, if you go up there, you can actually see the Mediterranean Sea from the mountain. And he goes to Jezreel. That's where their second palace is. It's not that far away, but far enough. And then when Jezebel threatens his life, he really flees all the way down to Beersheba. So Israel at this time is split in two parts. This ornish, brownish, tannish color is the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom in green here is Judah. So he goes all the way down to Beersheba, and then we're told that he goes even an additional day into the wilderness. He is scared out of his mind. He doesn't want to be murdered by Jezebel. And it's there in the wilderness that Elijah is at his lowest point. And he appears to be what we might call in modern times depressed. So let's talk about this question for today. Can Christians be depressed? Now, before we go any further, let me just sort of acknowledge depression is a loaded word. And depression is a word that I think means a lot of different things to different people, right? There are a lot of people that just, I find, throw out the word depression sort of casually today. Like you say, oh man, I'm just so depressed that the twins are so bad at baseball. Right? You just sort of throw it out, and they are. Uh, well, for others, <laughs> it's a very just clinical term. And I, and I don't really want to get too deep into medical or psychological terminology today because I'm not a doctor and I'm not a therapist. But I do want to start to answer this question Can Christians be depressed? Does it happen? Should it happen? So let's just put some parameters around this word depression. Uh, first of all, depression is not the same as being discouraged or sad. So if you lose a job, or let's say you experience some other sort of difficult situation, maybe it's a hard breakup, or maybe a relative dies, and you feel really down about it, that's not necessarily depression, that's being human. Right? That's having just emotions, normal emotions, to what is a really difficult experience of life. 
But on the other hand, if you feel this prolonged sense of sadness, even to the point where you can't even pinpoint why you feel sad anymore, that's often depression. Or let me give you another example. If you feel like a hopelessness that goes beyond a normal scope of grieving time, it goes even longer than what people would normally experience, that could be depression. It can also be depression when you're feeling these intense feelings of sadness, and they seem to sort of pervade almost every minute of your day, almost every interaction that you have. Or sometimes depression can just be when your feelings reach such a serious level of intensity that your thoughts begin to become darker, perhaps even suicidal. All of those can be examples, and that's not an exhaustive list, but those are some of the most common examples of what we're talking about when we refer to depression today. So do those things happen to people of faith, people who believe in God? I'll just take the suspense right out of it. Uh, Yes, they do. And it's right here. We just read about it in an amazingly godly man, Elijah. I mean, goodness, he asked the Lord to take his life. And it's not just Elijah in the Bible. (laughs) You know, one of the things I was thinking about this during the worship, at this service, one of the things I think when I read the Bible, I think the Bible is a lot more honest about the emotions of life than most Christians are nowadays. You read about, it's not just, it's not just Elijah. You know, read Jonah chapter four this week. Jonah as well. He asked the Lord to take his life. So does Moses. It's in Numbers chapter 11 if you want to read about it. He's so frustrated with the people. Read the Psalms. King David. Some of his Psalms, he sounds incredibly depressed. As he experiences the gamuts of emotions that we experience in life. And one of the things I want you to think about is these men, Elijah, David, Moses, they experienced some of the highest highs with God, right? I mean, just think about it. The love that they felt from God, the miracles that they witnessed are tenfold what most of us will ever see in our lifetime. And yet they still experience bouts of discouragement and depression. Interestingly enough, often their depression comes right after the high points in their life. And I just think if it can happen to the spiritual giants, then we better believe that it can happen to us regular folks that follow Jesus. Now, this passage that we're studying today, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 9, it's not an exhaustive treatise on depression. That's not what it's meant to be. But there are indeed things that we can pull out of here that we can learn about depression and how God specifically interacts with it from this passage. And I want to do that today because Elijah is hurting. He's hurting, I think, in many ways from what we would just call unmet expectations. I think if you really think and you go back through the pain in your life, so much of our discouragement and pain comes out of unmet expectations. And Elijah rather than sort of dealing with it or processing through it, he allows those unmet expectations to bother him, to fester, and again, he lets it build into these depressive and eventually even very dark thoughts. This man of God. 
So I think our, our, our quintessential question this morning is, what does God do about it? Well, thankfully, God doesn't do what I think most of us would do if we saw Elijah like that. I think a lot of us, if we saw Elijah under the broom bush, and he wakes up and we hear him saying, Lord, take my life, I think a lot of us would say, Elijah, pull yourself together. You just saw God do some amazing things. What you need to do is you need to focus on the positive again. Get yourself together. I think others of us, we would look at Elijah and say, Elijah, how can you talk like that? You need to repent. Repent of those ungodly thoughts. You need to stop talking like that. You are not honoring God with those words that are coming out of your mouth. But what does God do? Well, God sends an angel. Not to lecture Elijah, but to do what? I want you to look at it again because I want you to see what he does. Look at verse 5 if you still have it open. It says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So after a despairing Elijah actually gets a good sleep, God sends an angel to him to do what? To cook. Did you know angels could cook? I bet they make super good angel food cake, by the way. (laughs) But seriously, an angel comes and he bakes us a great meal. Bread over hot coals. He's out in the middle of the wilderness and he has a jar of water for Elijah. And then what does God want Elijah to do next? What's next? Go back to sleep. He sleeps again. And then the angel touches him. Now notice it actually says the angel touches him, and every word in the Bible matters. Every word has purpose. So it's taking great pains to tell you the angel touches him twice because physical touch matters in this state. And he wakes him up, and what does he need to do now? Start praying? He's alive, you gotta eat again. And he eats again. And then God gives him direction, and he gives him purpose. That purpose piece is really important in a depressive state. In fact, uh, next week, really, as we continue chapter 19, is really kind of part two of this message. We're going to talk a lot more about purpose and direction. But I just want you to think about these, these nine verses. Look at God's reaction and look at just how natural it is, how physical it is. God had determined that the best way to minister to Elijah in his current state was actually in the physical realm. And so Elijah is touched. He's allowed to catch up on sleep. And then God wants him to eat. There are times in your life, it may not be often, but there are times in your life when the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. It's to rest, it's to recuperate. One of the things I've always found a bit fascinating about the Gospels and the New Testament, the stories of Jesus, is the great lengths that the Gospel writers go to to show you the rest of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is taking a Sabbath. Uh, They show you how Jesus is really focused on taking time away up on the mountain just by himself with his Father. Or you remember the time when uh, 
everybody's in the boat and the storm comes and all the disciples are freaking out. What, do you remember what Jesus is doing? What's he doing? He's taking a nap, right? It's just incredible. Jesus' pace of life is slow. Slow enough to stop and eat with friends and his disciples. There's a lot I think we can learn from that. And one of the things I think we can pull out of it is we need to understand again that God did not create you as just a spiritual being. You have a body, do you not? You are also a physical being. It is part of who you are. You also have a mind. And so you are also a psychological being. And I think one of the challenges is in our culture, in 21st century America, is there are too many people that they only see one of those three things. The spiritual, the physical, the psychological. And they just think everything can be fixed in just that one realm. You have a lot of people that they just live in the psychological. And so you start telling them about your problems and what you're going through and what's happening. And they just think, oh, I can fix this. And everything to them is psychological. Well, if you just went to this therapist and you went through this sort of cognitive therapy, then we, we could just fix everything. And there's some great truths in that. But it's not isolated to just that, right? And there are other people that they just live in the physical realm. And every fix to them is physical. It's biological or it's physiological. Everything is a a chemical imbalance to fix or could be fixed by physical therapy or chiropractic. It's a physical fix. And there are still other people, and they're Christians like this, that everything is purely spiritual and they throw out those other realms. But in reality, it just isn't that simple, right? God has made you a spiritual, psychological, and physical being. That's how he made you. And so he's going to work sometimes through all three of those things. Uh, Let me just give you an example of how this uh, has worked in my life. So this this past December, it was uh, six, seven months ago, was probably the most exhausted and lowest that I have ever felt in 17 years of ministry. You know, it it took six straight years of an insane amount of work to lead our church to get into this building. And there were a lot of weeks during those years that I was in the office working by 6.30 in the morning, sometimes staying into the evenings. And every pastor who had gone before me has just said to me that, David, it's an insane amount of work if you're going to raise millions of dollars if you're going to go through a building program and then throw COVID on top of it, what happened was by the time I got to December of 2020, I was just utterly exhausted. And I mentioned it a few times to a number of you. And I, I, let me just insert here. I was so encouraged last winter by just the encouragement of this church. I just felt so encouraged. A lot of you sent me notes, Culver's gift cards. That was really nice. Uh, <laughs> And it, honestly, it meant a lot to me. But I, I started talking with a number of my mentors, just pastors, people that are older than me, been in ministry longer than me. Like, what do I, I am, I am, my tank is empty. And there's a lot to be done. And they just said, what you need in this moment, kind of like Elijah, was physical more than anything else. I was running myself into the ground. I was going to be out of gas and we needed to open this building in February. I'd like to be alive to see it, right? And so I talked with our board, 
And even though we were in the midst of this super intense season, I was supposed to open the building in like five or six weeks, I took a two-week vacation right then, which is so counterintuitive, right? It's like, not what you do. But it's what I needed to do. So right after Christmas, I took two weeks off, and I slept a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I ate. I even got out of town just to get away. I drove by myself uh, off to Wisconsin. Uh, one of my best friends lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Just went and stayed with him for a while. I just tried to recuperate. And it was really, it was towards the end of those two weeks, I was listening to an incredible book, uh, God's Smuggler, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And I just started to break down, even though the Lord just started to just speak to me again. It was just interesting. I believe the spiritual is so important, so important. I was so exhausted. When you get so exhausted, you know what it's like? You just become irritable and you just can't even, sometimes you've seen this in your kids, maybe even more than yourself, some of you. You get so just exhausted and irritable, you can't even hear But when I started to rest and recuperate, I could just hear the voice of God again. And so you think about this question, can Christians be depressed? Yes, it happens. It does. We see it in Scripture to the greats like Elijah and Moses. Should you stay depressed? No. God doesn't want you to stay there. We see the angel come and touch Elijah, but Elijah still had to get up, right? He still had to put the bread to his mouth. When the direction was given, he still had to get up. He still had to put one foot in front of the other. And sometimes that's just a part of it. You may be in the lowest of lows right now. And I don't know how long you're going to be there. But I would say to you really two things. Number one, don't be content with staying there. And number two, this may sound like a contradiction, but it's not. Also, don't shame yourself for being there. Do you understand the tension of those two things? We use this metaphor a lot in this church that faith is like a roller coaster. And I believe the Bible, again, explains this better than most modern-day Christians do. It just is. You're going to have ups and highs with God, and you're going to have lows. We did a series on this one. It's called All-Terrain, ATV. And it's, there's, sometimes there are mountains, sometimes there are valleys, sometimes there are plateaus. It just is what it is. And your low points are going to come. They just are. And the last thing that I want for you, the last thing that God wants for you, is when you get into that low part of your faith, the last thing I want for you is to shame yourself there and go, what am I doing here? And I find myself, I'm doubting, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed. Why am I even a Christian anyway? No, please, do not do that. Look at Elijah. Look at what he saw. And he's there. You know what you are? My friend, you are a human being. And sometimes life looks like that. But the key is, when you're there, and you're under the broom bush, and all you feel like doing is sleeping, let God minister to you there. Look at the heart of God in this passage. Look how gently and graciously God deals with his friend Elijah. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't lecture him. He lets him experience touch, sleep, and food, and then he begins to speak in spiritual direction into his life. 
And so if you're in a, a dark place right now, I, I, I just want to say to you, let God minister to you. Even if your thoughts are as dark and dire as Elijah's were, and in a room this size, there probably are some of you dealing with that. Let God speak into you. You know, I think one of the mistakes that Elijah makes in this passage is this a little note right in verse 3. I don't know if you even saw this. Is Elijah decides he's going to leave his friend and his servant behind. And then he goes off by himself. We do this when we're depressed. We do. We retreat into this black hole of isolation. And it never works. Let people help you. Let us be a light, a guide in your life. In fact, for some of you in this room, I want you to do something really brave today. Especially if your thoughts, your thoughts are growing darker and darker each day. If you are struggling, what I want you to do is I want you to talk to a pastor here today. And just say, I, I need help. If that feels too hard for you, what I want you to do is I want you to send one of us, or even it can be the elder, the house leader of your house group, I want you to send someone an email before you go to sleep tonight. As a lifeline, just to say, I need help. We will not shame you. We will not mock you. We will love you and help you. We believe that's what we do as a representative of Jesus. We offer even free counseling here at this church. Let us help you. Let us be that light. Let us speak God's kindness into you at this time. Because God loves you. He pursues you even in your darkest hour. He went into his darkest hour. Jesus did in pursuit of you. You know, I think of that night when Jesus is about to go in to the garden and be arrested. He first gathers all of his disciples together for one last supper. And it's on that night that he gives them this way to always remember his pursuit of them, his sacrifice for them, and that's what we call communion. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this about communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul also writes in this chapter that whenever we take it, we ought not to take it in vain. So we don't just go through the motions. And he also means that this is for people who are truly believers in Jesus. And in a room this size, there may be a few of you that you're just sort of checking out this Christianity thing. And that is awesome. We're super excited that you're here doing that. But this thing of communion is for people who are absolute, they're true believers in Jesus. So we would ask that you just wait at this point as you explore of what Christianity is. And so at this point, I'm going to call our band uh, back on stage because I just want to take time as we go through this to just reflect as well. And so what you'll find if you look under the chair in front of you, you'll find a small communion chalice. Looks kind of like this. If you're in the front row, it's under your chair. And once you just grab that. And then what you can do is you can look to the bottom of the chalice and you can pull that wrapper off and you can just take the little piece of bread out of there. And I want you to take it yet. I want you to just hold it in your hand. And I want you to just take a minute before we just do this. And I want you to reflect on the love of Jesus, that even in your lowest of lows, even knowing your lowest of lows, 
that he would let his body be broken in his love for you. So just take just, just 30 seconds or a minute. Would you just reflect on that before we take it together? body of Christ was broken for you. Let's partake together. Now, before you take the cup, I want you to just take a moment before we drink of this juice, and I want you to just thank Jesus that he let his blood be spilled out for you, that even when you feel down or discouraged, even depressed, that his love for you never runs dry. Just take a minute and reflect on that. blood of Christ was shed for you. Go ahead and peel back the covering and take a drink from the cup. And then you can just take the wrappers and put them in the chalice and you can stick it back under the chair in front of you. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. We thank you that Jesus rose again and that we can know him today and despite all of our sin, that you would love a people like us. You know, while we're, while we're praying and we have our eyes closed, I just want to say to some of you in here, if this is just clicking for the very first time today, that God loves you and he is willing to forgive you I want you to know that you personally can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ by believing that he died in your place on the cross and by turning your life over to him to say, Jesus, if you love me that much, I want to become your follower. I want to leave this old life. I want to put my whole life under you. And if you do that, he will come into your life. You can know him. You can have a relationship with him and he will save you, save you from the penalty of your sins so that you would not spend eternity in hell. You would know him here on earth and you would spend eternity with him in heaven. And that is the free gift. It is the greatest gift in all of history. And if you've never made a decision to become a follower of Jesus, you can do that today. And if you want to do that for the first time today to say, yep, today is the day 
I believe, I want to follow Jesus. What I want you to do, while people just have their eyes closed and we're reflecting, as a way to sort of mark this day, would you just raise your hand up in the air and say, yeah, today I believe. I want to be forgiven. I want to become his follower. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up wherever you are to say, I need that. I need to be forgiven. I want to be his follower. Go ahead and just raise it up if you've never done that before. Amen. Let me give you about 10 seconds or so. Anybody need to make this decision today? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? All right, amen. Anyone else? The most important decision you can make of your life, your eternity is rests upon this decision. All right, if you raise your hand today, I want to pray with you. It's not a magic prayer, but it's just a prayer to tell God where we're at right now. And if you're believing this for the very first time, or you've believed it much of your life, I want you to just repeat this out loud after me. Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. So everybody just has their eyes closed for one more second. If you raised your hand today like some of you did, I, what I want to do is I want to get you started on this. And I want to give you just some more information because I believe you just made the most important decision of your entire life. And you want to make that decision and then go, I'll figure it out. No, you want to know, well, what do I do next? And so what we're going to do, we're going to sing a final song of worship. And if you raised your hand, what I want you to do, so why don't you just, while people are kind of closing their eyes while I pray here in a second, I want you to just sneak out into the lobby. I'll meet you out there and I'll just give you some really important next steps. And so while people pray, you can sneak out. I'll meet you out there and you'll be able to sneak back in the service. Uh, if you're here today and someone from your family or a friend raised their hand, would you go out there with them as well? And our follow-up team will be going. So there'll be a number of people kind of walking out. So I will pray and I will meet you out in the lobby in just a second. So let me just pray and then we'll praise God. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you, God, that uh, you love us. That even when we are so down and so discouraged, even depressed, that you just love on us. Lord, I pray for anyone in this church right now that is just feeling so depressed. God, would you just minister them in the way that you know how? May we do that in the way that you do it, Father. And just meet us where we're at, Jesus. We love you and we give you our hearts. Amen.